Hello, welcome to the How Might We podcast. I'm John Barnes. So before we start today's episode, um, just some updates, a bit of housekeeping. First thing is to say uh, that people have nice things to say about the podcast, um, which is great. I'm really grateful for those of you who have shared your feedback. I'm particularly grateful because it seems previous episodes have, have at times had a really tangible impact on some listeners. Uh, and I'm really happy, happy to hear that. I know that some listeners have adopted some of the routines that Bruno suggested in episode one, and that's great to hear. Uh, I heard from one listener who shared that the second episode on child-led education with Marcelo Valenci has led them to question their own upbringing, beliefs um, around their own education and how, how that's influenced who they are today. So I'm really proud of this and I'm, I'm happy that things have started so well. Um, I would love to get more feedback from, from you. Uh, you can do that through the contact form on my website. So johnbarnes.me, that's J-O-N-B-A-R-N-E-S dot me. At the bottom of the page, you should find a contact form. Uh, so, so please send me your thoughts. That can be uh, some, some words of encouragement like I've had recently, particularly changes that, that have come from the podcast, as well as tips, uh, feedback con- con- in the constructive sense. Uh, it could also be guest suggestions. Um, so for those of you who are really enjoying the podcast, I'd really like to ask for your support, which for now you can just simply do by subscribing to the newsletter, uh, which again, you can find on most pages on the site, particularly on the podcast page. Um, so this will help us to really get into a true dialogue, and therefore I'll be able to shape the podcast around what, you, what you're thinking and what you need. So on that note, I want to say that I really want to build this podcast with you. And one example of that is that I've launched the Open Trello Board, which is the beginning of a totally transparent setup here, which will evolve over time with feedback forms, and guests and, and topic suggestion forms. Um, I'll also be sharing some reports soon, um, such as uh, guest diversity, um, listenership diversity, as well as future finances, possibly. So, so the best way to know about that stuff, again, is to subscribe to the newsletter. But for now, head to the podcast page on my site and you'll, you'll see the open Trello board, uh, which hopefully, hopefully you'll, find, you'll find useful. Um, so please do that, subscribe. Also, um, feel free to subscribe in your podcast app. I ask this in hope that it also tweaks the algorithms uh, just, just enough that I, uh, the, the ideas shared in this podcast become more discoverable to more people. So I'm incredibly happy with the, the, the reception so far the podcast has had. Uh, I'm finding it really fulfilling on a human, creative, intellectual level to, to speak to such amazing people. Uh, and I'm, I'm really grateful for the impact and, and the support so far. So thank you so much for that. Now moving on to this week's episode. So this week is a slightly heavy one. Uh, this week I speak to Elif Sarikan about direct democracy revolution happening in northern Syria. Uh, I met Alif when we both spoke at the Philosophy Festival at Hay on Wai this year. Alif is Kurdish, uh, she's an activist for the Kurdish movement, and in this conversation we focus on the Rojava Revolution. So the Rojava Revolution is a revolution happening in northern Syria, and it's filled the vacuum left by the Assad regime um, by a form of governance known as, di- known as direct democracy, sometimes self-government government, and, and sometimes... Uh, known as anarchism, that's in the, in the true sense 
of anarchism as a legitimate form of power. Um, so the movement is based on the ide ideologies of Abdullah Ocalan, an ideological leader of this movement currently uh, who's in a Turkish prison and follows the principles of gender equality and demo direct democracy amongst others. It's an astonishing thing, that, and I'm not sure if it's either because of or in spite of a chaotic war with ISIS, they've developed a form of self-government based on those principles. Uh, so I'd like to add here that when I hear Elif's description of direct democracy for 4 million people, uh, which you'll hear in the second half of this episode, I really do see, see clearly how thanks to technology this could scale to come far closer to the distributed democracy I've described in my talks and various debates and writings. Um, they feel utterly compatible to me. Uh, and this, this example and story is, is just, just incredibly inspiring, really, particularly because of the circumstance in which this is happening. Um, so so really, really stay into the, the second half of the episode for that. So I really enjoyed this conversation, although you'll, you'll definitely see a pretty long setup, and I'm sorry for that. Maybe I can do it differently next time. But I'd like to explain why, and the reason is for nuance uh, and for understanding towards a totally different cultural circumstance, one that I certainly cannot possibly comprehend or begin to empathise with from my vantage point as a, as a privileged Westerner, let's say. Um, so they're building what sounds like a remarkable society whilst being at war in a heavily religious and diverse society in the Middle East. And so for that reason, I really take the time in this episode to lay out the foundations here before we get to the solutions. And, th and that's simply because I don't think we can judge or have an opinion on what's going on until Elif sort of paints, paints the picture for us and at least helps us a little bit to, to understand what's going on over there. So the, the question we, we ask ourselves in this episode is how might we build a stateless society? Uh, so the episode really is in two halves. There's an hour, more or less, to understand what's going on and another hour uh, to see the amazing things happening. I left the conversation totally buzzing um, and I love that talking about one thing, in this case the Rojava revolution, can take us on a tour of so many topics. Um, from feminism and male support for feminism to gender equality, nation states, war, racial and religious integration, self-organization, um, a society that truly has a bottom-up political system from, from local areas to neighbourhoods to cities to cantons to federations, uh, a, form, a form of self-governance that, that I think really is incredible. So I'm really grateful that we touched on all this stuff and I'm grateful to Elif for being such a great uh, person to have this conversation with because we, again, we touched on topics that as from my vantage point, are sometimes tricky to talk about without feeling like I'm, I'm constantly going to put my foot in the foot in it. And, and she was just amazing to have that chat with, and I, th I think we enter a really great dialogue. So, so that was amazing, the conversation itself and the content of it. I'm incredibly inspired by the transformations in governance and particularly culturally in terms of women's rights that are happening over there. All this to say that I, I kind of felt like I was steering a ship where it's tricky to find a good combo between sticking to the topic on one hand, but also allowing for tangents and deep dives into all the, the amazing subtopics that appear. So many times you might hear Elif and I 
stop ourselves from digressing um, whilst also allowing some digression. Um, and I, I think that was important for, for all, all that is in this conversation to emerge. And you're particularly here in the second half, uh, just, just some, amazing, some amazing ideas uh, that, are, that are happening in reality right now uh, in Rojava. Um, so thank you so much. I hope you leave this conversation as inspired as I was. Um, I'd like, with no further ado, to introduce my conversation with Elif Sarikan, and it's entitled, How Might We Build a Stateless Society? Hello, Elif. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. How are you doing? Very good. Thanks for joining me. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Um, before I start, I need to make sure I'm also getting your name right. Is it Elif Sarikan? Am I saying that right? Um, yeah, some people say Elif, some people say Elif. It, yeah, it doesn't really make a difference to me. Okay, all right. Well, I'll, 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 try, I'll try and get it right as we go along. So I think we've, uh, from what I can gather, we've got quite a lot in common. Uh, I also think in this conversation, we're probably going to talk about a lot of topics that maybe some people find difficult to discuss. I imagine it will be difficult for us to have this conversation without touching on politics, religion, race, gender, potentially. Um, who knows? I don't quite know where, where the conversation um, is going to take us. But my assumption is that for listeners to truly grasp what you're doing and understand what's going on, um, I think we're going to have to give them a, a lot of context. So my suggestion to you is that we, we sort of build the conversation up layer by layer um, so that we can sort of paint the picture and the context for them and, and then we'll be able to go into the real grit of what, what you're doing at the moment. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, and that's, that sounds quite good, actually. I think it's important to be able to break certain things down that a lot of the time seem quite complicated for people, but they, I always say the situation, and especially what we're trying to do, it's, it is complex, but it's actually not very complicated. There is a difference. Mm -hmm. So I yeah. think you're certainly right when it's, when you say, you know, there's certain layers and those layers, you know, deserve to be discussed separately, but also, you know, there must be an understanding that all of these are intertwined and there is a synthesis between, you know, all layers. Right, because it's going to be complex in that there's so many elements that affect one another. I think it's also going to be complex because uh, culturally it might not be necessarily relatable unless we set this context. Certainly for me, mm -hmm. uh, the, the place you're talking about is not something I've experienced before. Um, so I think we need to paint that so people can, can sort of dive into a VR experience with their headphones on. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds good. All right, let's do that then. Um, okay, so I mean, maybe just to start at the basics, let's, let's build up from you. So can you just tell us a little bit about you, your background? I guess what I'm, what I'm interested in is the journey that, that got you to doing something like this that, that you're so passionate about. So, so maybe paint, paint that for us a little bit before we get started. Sure. Um, so my uh, background is uh, Kurdish. My parents... Uh, migrated to the UK um, before I was born. So I was actually born in London. Um, I think that's quite an important part of what I see as a quite an important part of my, my journey and what shaped me because, you know, as with many migrant communities, you know, there really is the risk of 
especially with the second generation. So, you know, the people who were born here to migrant parents, we're experiencing some sort of like an identity culture clash, which I believe I, you know, somehow managed to overcome through being, um, you know, politically active and trying to become an activist of the Kurdish movement. So I wouldn't say I come from a particularly political family. You know, I, did, I don't have a, a um, legacy in my family of, you know, trying to be uh, revolutionaries um, or anything. But I think, you know, with, with, um, with, my, with the way I, I came to meet and try and understand um, the, these ideas, which what I think would be relevant to the people who may be listening to this uh, podcast is that, you know, it wasn't a given. And I also became to understand, um, you know, what we're going to speak about today in very subtle ways. And then all of a sudden I kind of realized that, oh, actually, you know, I, I, I agree with these things that I've been reading. So I didn't necessarily go out of my way to try and become political, but I think it was a lot of personal community and collective experiences that somehow led me this way. And again, I, I don't see it as, you know, some sort of um, inevitable, inevitable universal fate, but, you know, obviously people make individual choices and uh, individual um, individual steps to be able to discover certain things. But I think I would say, um, I'm trying to think of the years, I would say about six or seven years ago is when I started to become interested. And I think that's quite important because I'm 27 now. And, you know, when I was about 20 or 21, which I think is for most young people, but I think particularly young women, it really is um, where it kind of shapes you in many ways um or when what has shaped you starts to become kind of set in stone and I just started reading about my own background and trying to understand what was going on in the Middle East particularly the areas that concerned uh, the Kurdish people and I met with um the ideas of uh, someone called Abdullah Öcalan which um I think will probably come up quite a lot through our conversation because He's certainly, you know, potentially the most significant person in this uh, revolution in terms of ideas and paradigm. And I started reading especially the stuff he, he wrote about women. And I still have interesting conversations with people when they say, what? So it was a man who wrote about women's liberation. And I, I, I understand, I do understand that concern. But at the same time, I think this is also one of the things that we're trying to overcome as a, I guess as a movement as well, is that, you know, women's liberation is not just a women's issue, but the issue of our whole society. And um, I think one of the quotes that probably had the most profound Im impact on me was um, Abdullah Ojalan's quote when he says, a society can never be free without women's liberation, which means every way we try to, um, I guess, transform and create a free and peaceful and democratic society must be built on the foundations of women's liberation and therefore gender equality. And, you know, I just, I never expected to be, to read a Kurdish leader's writings and I guess a theory 
and have the opportunity to delve into 5,000 years of history. So I think that's, that's quite interesting when, when you know, you're reading about someone who started um, discovering or engaging with those aspects of history through the liberation of your own people, but then you manage, you through that, through his journey as well, you, you somehow come to read about, you know, the Sumerians thousands of years ago, you know, the first Sumerian state and the Neolithic uh, era and revolution. And you see how actually, you know, there are many, many periods in history that could be understood disconnected from each other, but actually to have a, have a, have a holistic and meaningful understanding of history and therefore be able to take that forward, we must be able to uh, try and at least have, I guess, a basic understanding of 5,000 years of human civilization if we really want to um, try and build, you know, a democratic society, which is, you know, I guess where we would also um, certainly agree on. And I, I can't imagine anyone who would listen to this that doesn't believe in democracy. But I think, you know, the ways of achieving that, the methods and levels of democracy is what I, what I often try to mm. say. Um, yeah, I think you, I think you, I, I, I'm not sure I agree that people will necessarily agree with democracy, <laughs> unfortunately. I think what we might have is that, well, in my experience, people might have a narrow view of what it is and see it purely as, as like the, the predominant representative, let's call it representative system. Um, and that's, and that's where I think, uh, people tend to have some sort of, I don't know if disgust is quite the word, but certainly frustration. Uh, and I'm hoping that some of the ideas you share today might actually expand some perspectives when it comes to that, that word, the D word kind of thing. <laughs> I like that you call it the D word. I <laughs> say, <laughs> um, I, I, so I think we're, we're starting to touch on, on some of this stuff. I'm really interested in talking about um, Ojalan's work um, and various um, other parts that, that you just mentioned before I go there. I mean, it sounds to me like you exploring your family background led you to uh, a passion which led you to understand like, uh, well, like you say, 5,000 5, years of history has become your study point, uh, which is quite remarkable in itself that you can enter somewhere so narrow and come out somewhere so broad. Um, could you just describe to people what you're doing right now? Like, how would you describe what you're doing at, at, at the moment? I think I've heard you described as a human rights activist, but maybe tell us a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I've never really heard anyone put it like that before, you know, enter it through kind of like discovering your family background to, um, you know, somehow engaging with 5,000 years of history. <laughs> that to me is exactly that, actually. Um, and yeah, I never thought about it that way, but yeah, it, it does sound, it makes me sound more interesting than I probably am when you put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so what I do right now is I do several things actually. So, um, I'm, I try to do some, uh, academic work, um, on trying to research. So my family are Kurdish and Alevi and Alevi is, uh, quite a prehistoric belief of, not just the Kurdish people, but of that region of the Middle East. So my family um, are, you know, that's their, I guess, belief. I wouldn't really call it a religion. Um, and so that was also one of my 
um, I guess, entry points as well, because I really was, I was really interested in the connection between, you know, Alevi society and uh, Kurdish society, which, you know, Kurdish, Alevi, like the mo most Alevis are Kurdish, but also there are aspects that, you know, are, are autonomous to each other. And I think one of the, another remarkable thing for me of the Kurdish movement is how it creates the synthesis between those areas of Kurdish society, which is one of the things I've been working on. I've been writing a, um, I've been writing a, a piece on that recently, uh, which hopefully will get published at some point. So um, what I do right now is, so that's one of the things I do. I try to do some work with Kurdish students. So we kind of organize um, within universities, we organize, um, panels, seminars, um, we're in the process of setting up some sort of a reading group to be able to engage with the ideas that has influenced the Rojava revolution. Um, and also, you know, to, to have some sort of a cultural presence within universities to be able to make Kurdish students feel more at home. Because one of the things that I say, because, you know, culture is a lot of the time used as a way to, uh, like, you know, depoliticize or keep people away from politics. But when you're uh, a nation or a people of 40 million and your culture has been oppressed and suppressed and, you know, you've had um, attempts of assimilation for certainly the past hundred years, but longer than that, protecting your culture or trying to um, promote your culture is also quite political. So, mm. you know, we try to we try to um, assist students in kind of like organizing with each other and organizing cultural events as well, you know, Kurdish music, dance. So that's one of the things I do and which overlaps with me being an activist of the Kurdish women's movement, which is, you know, I'll go to places and speak about the Kurdish movement. Um, again, I try to write about it when I do get a chance and, um, also just kind of tell people about it, you know, that I have people sometimes asking me for reading lists and I'll send them, you know, ways how, how or what they can engage with to get like... I know, I can, I can attest, I can attest to the reading lists for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's been, it's been amazing for me actually to be able to, to get that and then go, go into your world quite a bit. I, I really feel like uh, it immersed me somewhat. So I'm, I'm hoping... I'm hoping that's the case for lots of other people as well, particularly if they share that heritage with you. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, obviously that reading this is always evolving. I'm trying to make it more sophisticated, you know, as I, as I go along, but also I think, I think it's interesting that you speak about human rights because I, I obviously human rights is, you know, it, it's, I guess one should be our most basic understanding of humanity but the way human rights is used i in our society or in our world is what i don't agree with which is the only reason i would not call myself a human rights activist mm -hmm. because human rights is usually again used to um kind of like divorce a, an issue a, a um conflict or a a um you know, in the Kurdish sense, the, the oppression and the suppression that the people face, it's used as a, as a tool way too often to divorce it from the politics around it. So mm -hmm. that this is, this is the, this is why I don't agree with that. Um, with that. So it's almost like the word human rights, uh, ironically becomes a tool for discompassion. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, when we, when we try and engage with some human rights organizations, 
um, the issue we sometimes face, um, and actually more often than we, I feel like we should is, oh, you know, this is too political, we can't get involved, but it's like, you know, there's still people who are being obviously killed every day. Um, mm. There's the Turkish state who, who have, you know, very well proven and very well documented and reported, uh, unfortunately, not very internationally, um, the Turkish state's support and aiding of ISIS. So when we when we try and divorce this from politics, we don't understand that actually it's not an equal war or a battle or whatever you know term that's used to uh, describe these kind of situations, which are partly problematic as well. Is that when you have a force that supports, has supported, and probably continues to support the very the very enemy of humanity, and you want to divorce it from politics? Politics, then where are our human where are where is our understanding of universal human rights when we don't understand the very unequal power relations within those uh situations in the first place and this is mm. this is what we get to face a lot which i think and that's the thing when we when we talk about the ideas and the paradigm or the ideology of the Rojava revolution it for me as someone who is you know pretty immersed in it it's quite difficult for me to uh, talk about it, you know, disconnected from um, the current situation, mm. uh, which is why I say I don't agree with it div being divorced by po from the politics because, you know, there's things that are happening now, many, many layers, as we mentioned in the beginning. There's obviously things that have happened in the past and there's obviously aims and objectives for the future, which it, it's, you know, it, it will be quite difficult to really talk about it in in the in the capacity that we have today but it's just important for people to realize that there are many layers to this not just layers within i'm gonna confuse people but i'm gonna say it yeah carry on like there's, <laughs> there's layers within the layers that we need to that we should acknowledge it doesn't mean we have to understand so i don't mean to confuse people or make it seem like it's too complicated for people and we don't always have to understand everything. You know, I'm trying to understand things every day, even though I've been reading about this uh, this revolution and engaging with it for, you know, probably a lot longer than a lot of people um, or almost everyone who will, who will listen to this. But, you know, there's obviously always things that we're trying to understand. But it's just, you know, there's certain things that we just need to acknowledge that, that are there and we don't always need to necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, really delve in deep. And I think that's... Yeah that's when we talk about, you know, democracy and the understanding of, you know, or the, you know, the, what the D word has, the impact it has <laughs> had on our society. Um, I think, you know, it's just important to acknowledge it. And yeah, we, you know, you know, as humanity, we are quite experienced, you know, we have many years of experience. We have many years of experience about around things that we know we, we just shouldn't repeat. But it's, this is the scary time where it seems like, the things we promised ourselves as humanity really seem like they may be repeating themselves, but in more insidious ways, which is mm. one of the things that I guess, you know, we, we need to, we, this is one of the reasons why your podcast is so important and we need to have discussions around, you know, these issues that like you say, people either find confusing or just don't think are actually important, but, are actually the pillars of what we what we should be trying to build.
Well, and in my experience, when these things are discussed, we stop at the problems uh, rather than looking not necessarily at the, the solution in that, that that tends to be an impossible thing in a, in a living system, but certainly to explore opportunities. Um, and what I love about this is that there's definitely a big problem and there's definitely some amazing stuff happening uh, that, that, that could inspire solutions. Um, so, so I think we've done a good job here at acknowledging the nuance culturally, psychologically, um, as, as well as the nuance in terms of the complexity of the system. So I'm definitely not expecting this conversation to be linear uh, and follow, follow bullet points. Um, but I think a good entry point into the, the meat of the topic here is that Roger Vaux revolution. So I think maybe, a, yeah, to, to, to lay that part for people and really send us there, can you describe uh, this revolution, describe, I mean, where it is, might even be an important thing for people, as, as well as describing its history a little bit for us. And I think that will lay the ground for us to enter into these meaty topics. Sure. Um, so Rojava literally means West in Kurdish. So it's historically what... Um, the Kurdish people would consider West Kurdistan and um, so it's mod modern day northern Syria and the Kurdish movement the Kurdish freedom movement have been um, have a 40-year history of organizing in certainly within Turkey but also within Syria as well which um, for 15 years the person I mentioned at the beginning Abdullah Öcalan who is considered um, the Kurdish people's leader, um, especially ideologically. Um, he spent 15 years in Syria organizing with local communities, which I think, you know, it's important to acknowledge even right now before I properly talk about the history is that that is probably one of the biggest differences in why Rojava has been successful and certainly has more of a potential is that the foundations of it are very grassroots so it wasn't a vanguardist movement that came in and said okay we know how you should live better but this is how we think you should live so you know this is what we're going to do with your society it was engaging with the um the most uh, grassroots level of the society wherever you are and understanding you know how firstly how they see their lives and um you know, educating them about, you know, your history, because especially if you're an oppressed, um, an oppressed people, a lot of the time the oppression is um, carried out through trying to wipe your history. So um, the engagements with the local communities, the villages, um, the towns, the cities, um, you know have have been going on i would say you know now for way over 20 years so in 2011 when um you know uh, as a part of the arab spring when um there was the uprisings in syria as well and at the time um the you know the then and i guess still somehow current uh, syrian president assad he felt like he needed his troops more in the south so he literally like withdrew his troops from the north of syria and so obviously there was a vacuum created within and amongst the chaos that was happening within the region where the kurdish movement that had been preparing for such a moment because that's also one of the analysis analyses of um 
Abdullah Öcalan of the idea of civilization, the nation state and um, uh, capitalism is that, you know, the moment in moments of chaos um, is when you have the most profound opportunity, but also obviously the biggest risk. So they were preparing for this. And in an, in any undemocratic area, he says, and I guess, you know, m most people will, would um, acknowledge this as well, is that, you know, the system becomes unsustainable, which is what I think we are probably seeing within Turkey now as well. You know, the more, the more Erdogan becomes or goes towards dictatorship and therefore becomes more of an authoritarian despotic leader is the more you can really see that the situation and the system or the structures in Turkey are becoming more and more unsustainable. Um, which is again another reason why most dictators you know become more and more um, aggressive and more and more uh, intolerable to any sort of opposition you know there's there's more people um, more journalists in prison in Turkey than anywhere else in the world put together and this is literally because they have been in opposition to um, President Erdogan so you know uh, and I and I mention this because you know the, a region. It's it's really important to understand that a lot of the politics, even the domestic politics of each country, are really affect um, the domestic politics of other countries as well. So yeah, when Assad did withdraw his forces, the, the especially the Kurdish movement at the time saw this as an opportunity to be able to put into practice what they've been talking about the paradigm that they've been. Uh, building over many years so they literally started they the a lot of the commune um communes and um kurdish people's assemblies did actually exist before but um well some of them existed before but you know for obvious or maybe not so obvious reasons but they they were underground for a long time because being kurdish in syria was um was just not recognized you know if you were Kurdish you uh, Assad I can't remember what year it was so I don't I don't want to guess just in case it's wrong but I think it may have been in the 60s that Assad stripped well Assad's dad at the time um who was you know who was the you know president before him they stripped um the Kurdish people of their citizenships and you couldn't buy any property, you couldn't, um, you know, the most basic rights you get as a citizen, you didn't have. So a lot of the things, and, you know, obviously the Kurdish language was banned, any kind of Kurdish culture was banned. And there so was, this is total cultural genocide, essentially. Here. Yeah, so there was an official policy um, carried out by um, the Assad regime called the Arab Belt, which was an Arabization process, which... Turkey had the equivalent called, and these are official terms that I'm not making these up, but so mm. the Turkey had an official term called the Turkification process, which they also did the same to their Kurdish population, especially in the Southeast. And so Assad did this to his Kurdish population in the North um, of Syria. And so, um, you know, like you said, yeah, total cultural genocide, the language, any kind of, Kurdishness in any way was banned and so therefore you would either be imprisoned or killed if you were even caught giving Kurdish language lessons so um so yeah that's why a lot of the organizing which you know did exist was quite underground and I think it's important to understand because yeah there, there have been instances um very promising and very inspiring instances um during the Arab Spring but it's important to understand that 
it really makes a difference if, if a movement, if a revolution has a foundation. So especially with the Roger revolution, it didn't just happen overnight. The preparations were being made for decades. Mm. For so it sounds to me like that, um, that, that, well, we've called it cultural genocide. So let's, let's just go there and stick with that for, for reference. But that is what led to an underground um, resistance, let's say. And then it was Assad uh, withdrawing forces from the north of Syria that led to those underground, that underground resistance becoming a, an above ground, a visible revolution. Is that right? Yeah. And so, you know, they, they started organizing society in the way um you know in the way that you know based on the principles of direct democracy ecology and women's liberation so every and i guess we can go into details of the actual structures um you know in a second and um i think another thing is you know one of the another significant um i guess event in the revolution is you know this happened, I would say, towards the end of 2011, mainly 2012. And then uh, very shortly after um, the um, ISIS attacked uh, Kobane. And so, you know... With Which the, is in Rojava? Yeah, so Kobane is one of the cantons of uh, northern Syria. Um, and it was, if anyone has heard anything about Rojava, they would have probably heard it about it through uh, the resistance of Kobane because you know it was one of the most historic resistances um I guess ever and you know people um you know women at the forefront of fighting ISIS and obviously actually beat them um and managed to hold 134 days of resistance against ISIS and finally um finally drive them out and you know declare declare the area liberated and so these so these everything we we will talk about in terms of structure and what's been what has been built there was within that um within those conditions you know at mm. the same time so while they were building this society it was also fighting against the so-called islamic state and i think that's that's one of the most important things to um, try and understand because I think, you know, a lot of the times in a lot of, in a lot of revolutions, you know, many issues like direct democracy, like especially about women's position in society, you know, they said, oh, of course, of course, this is important, but we'll do this after revolution. And that's why in many cases after, you know, said revolution, the, the position of women especially but you know obviously levels of democracy have been either the same or if not worse than mm. you know, before the revolution it's just that you know the 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 oppressors have changed faces or you know now they speak your language in certain like yeah, what wars in wars in the name of democracy have have typically been been pretty dishonest from what i can gather yeah i mean i think a lot of these i think there's many revolutions that the results have un have been unfortunate and certainly been more or less the complete opposite of what was embarked upon in the first place. But I think obviously they still do set important press. They have set important precedents and do have important legacies to be, to take from, which is, you know, one of the things I don't agree with is when, you know, for example, even within, um, even within, uh, uh, 
what's it called? Like the Soviet revolution, for example, the Bolshevik revolution, you know, of course the people that came into power that I think needs to be separated from, you know, the aims and the, the resistances that were carried out, carried out, out by ordinary people. I think it's mm. the same when, you know, the, the, people who happen to become the leaders after the revolution or during the revolution who obviously um i, I don't want to i don't want to uh, swear on your podcast you can swear on my podcast it's okay <laughs> okay who messed it all up for everyone and who <laughs> came that's a very polite swear word I think. yeah I, I, I thought yeah i, I changed my mind <laughs> Um, but you know they they you know they ended up becoming authoritarian uh, mm. almost genocidal dictators not almost I guess we can call them genocidal dictators in many cases but I think you know it's a shame when when that when that result is taken as as a way to just completely um, disregard the entire entire revolution i think in many inst- many cases in in history there's a lot we can take from especially from the way ordinary people you know the what we call the most grassroots level of society contributed and were part of that revolution mm. yeah, I, I guess like where power is placed is important here rather than placed in the leader of a revolution, so to speak. I mean, in, in your case, uh, we'll go on to this in a bit, but the, the leader's not around. So, so, and the ideology isn't to put power in that person, it's to put power in the process of, we'll define it later, but, but some form of direct democracy, which makes it more, di- the, there's, no, there's no ability for an authoritarian in that, in that system, right? Where the process has power. Yeah, and also, you know, the person... The, this person who is considered, you know, Abdullah Ojan, who is considered a leader by millions of Kurdish people, you know, in his own paradigm that he that he has proposed to, you know, the Kurdish movement and therefore the wider Kurdish society, you know, he says, go and do this yourself. You know, I, especially being incarcerated on a Turkish island prison for almost 20 years now, I have, I mean, that's not when he started these, um, thinking about these things. He was always trying to you know understand and dis, um, dismantle the idea of the nation state um, capitalist civilization um, obviously colonialism imperialism he was always trying to um, dismantle these things but you know when you're kind of I guess what we can call a full-time revolutionary it's sometimes and when you don't want to be a revolutionary who just is a vanguardist who kind of just you know dictates to your what we can call your people um, what to do you obviously spend a lot of time engaging with your with your society with your community which is why most people would probably not have the chance to really focus on some of the issues do or you know do the reading that is necessary so you know in mm. some ways him his incarceration on the Turkish island prison of Imrala gave him the opportunity to be able to you know read and really um delve into certain aspects of um the literatures that has influenced his um ideas today which which um obviously is a one of the most important pillars of it is direct democracy and i wouldn't necessarily call it like a leaderless um revolution but you know what i mean is this person is considered especially an ideological and a philosophical leader of um the kurdish people and i certainly think that that should be the case and i think when we try and understand these things we that's a part of that's certainly an aspect where we 
really need to try and step up, set, step out of our mm. own shoes. Cause that's one of the issues that I come across sometimes they say, Oh, but if there is a leader and you know, people are dedicated to him or like really respect him, then, you know, there's so-and-so risk that we've seen. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, when a person is seen as literally resurrecting your identity and your, your existence as, as a people, from the dead and from the shackles of, you know, whether it's the Turkish state, the Syrian, the Iraqi, Iranian state, which is um, the four nation states the Kurdish people are divided into, you know, it's important to understand why this person would have significance. And, mm. and I think that's why, um, you know, when, when it comes to, um, when it comes to, you know, in terms of like, the leader or I guess leaderless, I think, and with, you know, past experiences of past revolutions, I think it's important to understand the, the entire, um, I guess, spirit of the paradigm or the ideology is that, you know, is self-government and self-autonomy and therefore um, people governing themselves, particularly women. So it mm. doesn't leave much space for, an authoritarian leader to come and swipe, you know, all of the swipe, all of the power into their own hands. And I think the other remarkable thing, I mean, the other thing that I guess what we can call mechanism that somehow will prevent that revolution turning into or being co-opted by, you know, an authoritarian is that it's being constructed now. You know, it's not waiting mm. for after the so-called revolution or after, you know, in this case, the fight against ISIS. Because, you know, I was there in April for, I mean, only for two weeks. But when I was there, I, I, I didn't go onto the front line. So I didn't see any fighting. I, I um, mainly had meetings with um, people who are part of the Alternative Education Committee, Alternative Economy, and how they're trying to build these things. But, you know, you see that, these people, most of their resources undoubtedly and, you know, understandably go into self-defense. So still fighting and defending themselves against, you know, ISIS and now obviously the Turkish state who is determined to destroy the revolution because they openly say, and Erdogan has very openly said that he will never accept any kind of Kurdish autonomy on his border. And that's literally his only motivation. Right. So, so, you know, they, they, even if they had said, okay, we're just going to put every single ounce of our energy into the fight against ISIS and therefore protecting, um, protecting our, you know, territory and therefore also the fight against, or the protection, the self-defense against the, the Turkish army and its uh, jihadi allies, um, you know, a lot of people would have probably said, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's understandable. You know, most people wouldn't wouldn't think that that's that's a worrying thing. But they said, no, we're going to do things differently, even though, unfortunately, most of our resources do have to go into self-defense and um, and, you know, the fight against ISIS. We're still going to be building our structures, our society and our mechanisms at exactly the same time. So once this fight and hopefully it you know it would be over soon we're not like oh what do we do now we've we've already been building our society yeah, so th these are parallel processes or rather one process even not not uh not sequential one this isn't a case of winning a war and then and then rebuilding society both, both are happening at the same time yeah um, 
it sounds like. Just just so I can check, is so Rojava is also known as the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. Yeah. So I want to check that that's correct. But also it's not legally recognized, right? No, unfortunately it's not legally recognized. And I, I'm glad you mentioned that, actually. So I, I still call it Rojava because, one, because it's, uh, you know, it takes way too long to say the Democratic Federation. Yeah, <laughs> the DFNS. But especially um, a few years ago when, uh, one, when um, many, a lot of, I mean, there, there's already a lot of um, Arabs within the, within northern Syria as well, but especially when northern Syria, so Rojava started receiving a lot of uh, migration from other parts of Syria, um, you know, of Arabs, of Assyrians, of Syriacs, of Yazidis, of um, um, Turkmens. So they they said, okay, this was all of, always our aim. Our revolution is never just for the Kurdish people because any revolution just for the Kurdish people is not a, a completely free and democratic society um, because especially that region, I mean, many places in the world are very diverse, but particularly especially that region of the Middle East is potentially one of the most diverse places in the world where there's mm. tens, I, you know, I, I wouldn't know exactly every single one because there's tens of different, tens of different ethnicities, um, uh, religious, um, I get minorities that live in that region. So if we just wanted to, or if they just wanted to form a, a I guess a Kurdistan like a Kurdish nation state it would mean that you know yeah maybe Kurdish people would be somewhat more free but it would mean that it could potentially somehow evolve into a mechanism where it now oppresses or somehow doesn't hasn't created the autonomy for other um, ethnic, religious, or religious, or my belief minorities, mm. so, and, and the, co the cohesion of that of that diversity would wouldn't necessarily flourish in a in a nation state setup, essentially. Yeah, that's exactly that, actually. And um, so, yeah, when 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 these when these uh, these aspects were um, being engaged with the decision, so even from the beginning within the assemblies you know the the uh, commune the neighborhoods the canton assemblies there were always you know non-kurdish people so you know arabs syriacs assyrians turkmens yazidis um christians um but you know it was it was called rojava for for quite some time and the assembly or the um what we obviously call uh the federation kind of came together and said actually we want this to be more inclusive and because Rojava is a Kurdish word we want to um we're going to change the name of this region and call it the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria so it's more inclusive so now it's officially the you know the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. yeah so there's a there's a neutrality and an inclusivity built into that that sort of change of name essentially there yeah yeah I mean uh, some of us still call it Rojava mainly because it's just kind of quicker to say um yeah <laughs> yeah it is yeah it is. You, have to, you have to find a new sticky name maybe yeah um, I mean I, I guess it could be like DFNS but <laughs> it's like it sounds like you know um what was it the the ferry company <laughs> What about Brit Brittany Ferries or something? P&O? Yeah, sounds like, uh, just, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a solution. 
So I'm, I'm aware, I feel like we've painted the picture really well here. I think um, we're going to go into some of the, the solution, I guess, or the ideology um, soon. And we, we started touching on it with Ojalan. Um, first, though, I think a way into that conversation around his, his thesis, um, which is essentially the, the ideological backdrop for this revolution, is that there are some, I don't know if enemies is the word, but that I'm talking about ideas as enemies here. Um, certainly some anti-heroes. Um, and I'm wondering if you could give us a quick whiz through them. So the ones that spring to mind, having, having read some of his work now, is, is um, his distaste for capitalist modernity, uh, the nation state, um, and, and I think equality, although we may touch on that in a bit more depth later. Um, but it seems to me like those are the ideas that he opposes and those and the opposition to those ideas is what is what's created the foundations for for this form of, um, of, of direct democracy. So could you just take us take us through that rationale um, for us and th then we'll be able to go into to painting for people what what it looks like now, what this in practice, what this is looking like. Mm -hmm. So I would say the the foundational opposition uh, would be, as I briefly mentioned in the beginning as well, five thousand years of patriarchy. So Ojalan understands um, the, I guess, the analysis of now as well. So our present time, and therefore the way he um, somehow formulates a solution for the future is to understand that the 5,000 years of, uh, of civilization is essentially the history of the enslavement of women. So therefore the history of patriarchy. And he says that the first, essentially the first colony is uh, the woman because without colonizing uh, women, the obviously patriarchy would not have been possible and capitalist civilization would not have been possible and it's important to understand that it's not a complete um it's not a complete rejection of you know what we have like now in in our society or in civilization it's not necessarily an anti-civilization approach or a solution but it's to understand that we must transform our entire uh, dynamics and structure as you know, as societies and therefore as civilization to be firstly able to, um, I guess, dismantle or destroy um, patriarchy and therefore build a free society. And I, not that we necessarily should have to say this, but he also says that, you know, patriarchy is not just the enslavement of women, but also, um, you know, the part enslavement or I guess not even just part, but the, also the enslavement on, of men as well, because to be able to exist or survive within patriarchy, the man must kill a part of himself. You know, you must be this like incredibly rational, unemotional being to be able to survive and therefore succeed within patriarchy and all of our systems, um, you know, including, you know, where we live in the UK are based or built. Uh, on the foundations of patriarchy mm. so he says it's important to understand that you know if we if we take that as a starting point that you know 5,000 years of civilization is uh, the history of patriarchy and therefore the history of the enslavement of women 
and therefore you know this is somehow how we have we also created um colonies and the colonial system and imperialism and he he doesn't necessarily see these as directly uh, inevitably um a, an, an inevitable timeline he just sees it as you know this is certainly what the how the environment for colonialism was created for example because he says patriarchy and therefore the capitalist civilization that patriarchy influenced especially based on the accumulation of surplus resources is obviously one of the important pillars or principles of colonialism. You know, that is one of, or if not the main reason why colonialism happened is to be able to extract um, resources and therefore surplus resources from other parts of the world. Um, and therefore, mm, and actually that extractive mindset that you're describing there, I feel like that, that somehow does get to the core of what he's saying. There's actually a passage, I haven't got the quote here, but he describes man's, uh, or certainly in the Middle East at, at least, he describes man's like perspective on women as essentially like baby machines, like biological holes to be, to, to be filled and create humans from. Yeah. Um, which, which is like, you know, you, you just mentioned that the extractive beliefs of colonialism. Um, so I really see how he he sees those things as one thing, and seem, seems to preach something far more wholesome from what from what I can gather the the limited knowledge I have certainly. No, I think I think that's a good way to understand the connection. But one thing I would say is, you know, that certainly does exist in the Middle East. But I do think that is a I do think that's a situation within um like obviously where we are like especially in the west as well you know with issues of even in the us in 2018 with how difficult it is for example for women to take maternity leave and that's mm. because you know you either choose to be a baby making machine or basically asexual you know this and i mean i i am i am giving extreme um kind of ends of the scale here but that's kind of you know the the i guess the politics behind these kind of approaches and yeah in the uk we we do have um a better especially a better maternity leave um uh i guess system but even then you know most most women around certain ages are it's more difficult for you to get a job because you're seen as unreliable because you may go yeah. and have a baby for example and therefore again like i do think it's it does manifest itself in different ways, you know, whether it's in mm. you know, the East or the West or the North or the South, you know, any part of the world, I'm sure it manifests itself in different ways, but I, essentially the idea is the same is that you are a baby mate. You are seen as a baby making machine or, or, you know, you must, you know, or asexual. So if somehow you convince, um, you know, someone that no, you're not going to have babies, you know, you're seen obviously even now when, I don't know, I might have a random conversation with someone, I don't know, in a cafe or something, and I'll say, oh, yeah, I don't know, I don't think I'm thinking about kids or or anything. And they say, oh, don't worry, like, it'll change. Like, it's it's inevitable. Oh, my God. Must, must have a baby. That's the only, that's the only logic by which, uh, by which you as a woman are are able to to follow almost like... <laughs> yeah, I think... are saying the algorithm is inevitably going to lead you to wanting wanting a baby. 
yeah and they see it as you know kind of like oh I may be saying that because you know I'm depressed or something they say oh no don't say that about yourself and I say no I'm not saying this as a sad thing I'm just saying that I probably don't want any kids yeah and don't get me wrong I think motherhood is a very sacred thing you know we all love our mothers and they without not just them biologically bringing us to the world uh, or physically giving birth to us but in many other ways we probably wouldn't be the people we are today um without you know the contribution of our mothers in many ways so yeah. it is certainly a beautifully sacred thing which is one of the other things you know Erjalan does talk about but you know it's one, it's not recognized in that way in many ways. And two, even when it is, it's that's all that's spoken about. So, you know, mothers are so sacred because, you know, it, because you're, you're reproducing. Um, right. So, so it's like you can only be seen as that role. You can't be seen as, as you, as the, the complex set of identities and roles that, that you're able to carry out in life. You're, you're purely seen through the lens of that one maternal role is that is that what you're saying yeah yeah that is yeah for, for sure but also I think you know even if there was a a I guess a emphasis on motherhood I think it's you know that there's there's a transformation that is needed in the way we approach that you know especially mm. with and these conversations are not new conversations they've been taking place for you know decades if not you know centuries around you know domestic uh labor and you know therefore the unpaid labor of um you know what women do domestically and mm. i think you know that's a whole different conversation for a whole nother time which i you know we if we go into it we're not coming out for a long time right now yeah 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 but well I, yeah so i might ask us to sharpen uh, i'll let you finish off your thought and then i might sharpen in on the um on the 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 rest of this but but just finish off what you were saying there sorry yeah, no, all I was going to say is, you know, there's many conversations around um, the idea of motherhood and therefore domestic labor that have been happening for, you know, for w way too long, actually, for there, unfortunately, not to have been a solution until now, which is one of the things um, I'm briefly mentioned is that our approach can't be fragmented approaches to aspects of society, but we must have like a, a holistic approach to transforming our our whole society and therefore our whole system to be able to have solutions for you know in in you know in this case for example um the approach against uh mothers and therefore domestic labor mm. yeah so well thanks for letting me um as a white atheist western guy thanks for uh letting us have a conversation about gender and the pa patriarchy um kindly i feel we navigated that pretty well Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the the other elements I want us to talk about from Ojalan's perspective. So we've just we've just covered the patriarchy as one of the enemies, essentially ideologically, and then he has two others, which I believe are the nation state and capitalist modernity. Can you can you swing us through through his opposition and, and the movement's opposition to those two elements? Because I think then we'll be able to to fully jump into the the solution orientated part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. So, I think when we when we talk about the nation state and capitalist modernity, it's it's very difficult to talk about them as kind of like separate systems because they're essentially essentially not the same thing. They are not like a na nation state. A capitalist modernity is still, um, I would say, possible without the nation state. 
um, but I I would argue um, potentially that the nation state is not possible without the existence of capitalist modernity. And modernity is literally just another word for civilization. Um, you know, in in the way like we well, well, I, I talk well we talk about it. So I think. Um, so the nation, this is one of the interesting things that I always try to say is the nation state in comparison to certainly human civilization, but also human history in general is actually a very new phenomenon. You know, it's about, I would say 400 years old or something. Um, and so for such a new phenomenon, like I said, in, on the scale of, in the scale of human history, it's really, I think. I think it's really interesting, but also um, partly why I find it a little bit scary that, you know, people genuinely can't imagine any other way to organize mm. humans. Is that, what do you mean, no nation state? But what do you mean? How are borders going to work? What passport would you have? And it's like that in throughout our history, you know, we haven't had passports for a very long time. We haven't had the borders that we have for a very, that we have for a long time so for us to not be able to imagine another system outside mm. of the nation state is i think it's really a shame and a, a very big hit to human creativity is that what do you mean we can't imagine it and i i, yeah. I attribute that to the success of capitalist modernity that somehow it's managed to ingrain in us that we just can't imagine another way to live and obviously no one is 400 years old so it's not that anyone would necessarily know a world without nation states but you know it's it's important when we when we in school or wherever when we read things it's just it's unbelievable that we barely uh in even in especially in our education system we barely acknowledge another way to just like organize as humans so i think you know that is you know that that is i guess like my starting point is that i think it's it's a shame um and a really big i'm trying to find the right words it's a really big um it's it, it's it's a shame that our imagination as humans and our and therefore our creativity you know as humans as homo sapiens we arguably still exist now after billions of years and as a civil as civilization for 5000 years literally because we can imagine and create and you know everything that we have around us someone at some point imagined it and then created it so and i think that that um that sequence is quite important as well is that as humans potentially one of the differences we have you know from any other living species is that we imagine what we are going to create before we actually create it we are capable of doing that so you know you don't really i mean i, I obviously we don't exactly know we probably have, don't have the research to prove this but in many cases i don't know like an ant doesn't sit and think oh how am i gonna build this like colony and then go and create it they just do it right so that's i guess potentially the difference between us and other uh, living species. Well, that's, that's interesting because i think the, i think the like maybe there's a fun contrast here where on the one side what you're saying is as humans we're able to imagine and create which which i think you're probably correct and can't do having said that 
uh, we there's a limitation in our imagination. So you touched on a particular bugbear of mine, which is um, like a, an often difficulty in thinking in first principles and asking why until you understand what the point of a nation state is in the first place and then to build back up from there and wonder whether it is actually needed um or whether it's it's the wrong solution to the wrong problem um but ironically just going back to the ants i feel like what we're going to discuss next in terms of the way the revolution in rojava is uh, organized is probably more similar to ants in that it um it's from the bottom up and it's emergent rather from some sort of top-down uh, model where, where we think of something and then create it. Well, I mean, I think that's, I think, I get what you mean. And I, I have uh, two responses to that. The first thing is I don't think we have limits to our imagination. I think the reason why we do feel limited is, and again, I don't mean to, um, I don't mean to digress uh, because again, this could be a whole conversation within itself. Mm. This is one of the things I, I um, have focused on in my studies, actually creativity, imagination and value theory. Um, I'm an anthropologist. So this is a lot of the things that I have tried to engage with. Um, and particularly, you know, uh, um, you know, kind of like resistance and, and how, you know, uh, that's, you know, aspects of like creative refusal and these kind of things. So, I would say we don't actually have limits and arguably our system right now, so capitalist modernity, the capitalist nation state that, you know, in our case, like just to narrow it down, let's talk about the UK. You know, when we talk about creation and imagination and, um, and art and all these kind of things, you know, unfortunately, because of the way our system has has been constructed all of those aspects are deemed for the very top of society which is why i understand that you would necessarily think that imagining first um would inherently be a top-down thing but actually throughout history it's been quite the opposite and in rojava it is quite the opposite people do imagine and create imagine what they want to create before they create it and that's mm. what I guess we may get into in the solution is you know that's you know obviously the main idea of why commune meetings happen and neighborhood uh, assembly meetings happen because it's important to imagine what you're going to create whatever that may be it might be your new the new cooperative you want to build or it may be a um I don't know like anything to do with society mm. Obviously, we can well, so yeah, maybe maybe with no further ado, let's let's go there now. Um, so, so, so the the antithesis to what we've laid out there, uh, which are, I think Ojalan's main oppositions, um, the the alternative to this is this notion of a democratic nation, um, uh, which and its its expression, its manifestation, um, is in Rojavo, is is in the way it, it's being run and it's it's political sort of system i don't know if that's the right word is is emerging can you can you go and describe to us um not so much theoretically what that notion is but in practice what is this this new new emergent system looking like you started mentioning words like cantons um cooperatives um uh, so I'm really interested for, you, for, you, for us to start going there and for you to explain to us what this actually looks like in, in reality. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, Ojelan has a quote. Well, I think it might be nice to start this section with two quotes. One of them is that he says, um, truth is love and love is a free life. Um, and that's actually my favorite quote um, of Ojalan. And he means that, you know, essentially it, it comes from, you know, truth is love and love is a free life. So essentially building a free life is, um, and I don't mean, I know this is, it might sound quite abstract, but building a free life and therefore, you know, the way I guess the Rojava revolution is being constructed is, um, is a step in the way of humans understanding their purpose on this universe. And therefore, you know, he says politics is the mother of all arts because politics and therefore politically, a po political moral society and the way we organize around those principles is one of the most, um, you know, profound ways of creation and creating and therefore creating society. And this is, I guess, like the way the previous part of our conversation connects to this part is to understand that, you know, creation and imagination is not just about, you know, the abstract art that we see in museums nowadays, however beautiful they are and obviously also important, but it's also about creating life. And if we only give that to the hands of, you know, a few, and even in our representative democracy, it might be slightly more democratic than other places in the world, but it's still, we are still handing over every five years um, the ability to create our society and our world and what, the way we live and where we live into the hands of a few, you know, how, um, I can't remember the, how many million um, people live in the UK? I know it's about 8 million in London. Yeah. I was going to say 60 or something. Yeah. So think about 60 million people are represented by, um, I think our parliament is 600 people, 600 yeah. MPs or something, uh, or 650, maybe something like that. So there's an, an absurd inequality to think yeah. that every five every five years is enough to to call that um, having a say. Yeah, and so I think you know this. I think it is an important starting point, even though I I think that it was an an in, inevitable step in our way to um, real democracy. I don't think we had to go through this because a lot of people say, oh, maybe we had to or we have to go through. Uh, capitalism to be able to then dismantle it and create you know a real a free and democratic society I don't think that but I do think nevertheless we're here and we do we do have certain precedents that have been set that you know we can also use as as some sort of um, a starting point and with Rojava so practically the most bottom level of society and when i say bottom level i mean the most important level of decision making happens at the very bottom level which is the commune level mm -hmm. and so the way it works is um so there's lots of different committees within the assembly so the commune assembly so there'll be committees and again these are not these are not set um or there's not there's nothing dogmatic about them because every commune will have this have the committees that they think they need to serve you know their community so but a lot of the time it's you know the health committee the cooperative economy committee um the there's there will be a youth committee but also an autonomous youth assembly there'll be a women's committee but also an autonomous women's 
assembly but you know obviously in the kind of general commune women and youth are also autonomously represented and every level of administration or every level of society in Rojava has what we call a co-chair system so there must be a man and a woman chairing and therefore like uh, being the spokespeople of that particular level of society so each commune has a man and a woman as a co-chair and that's how it goes up um to the other levels of um, administration and therefore society. And this is, you know, um, and this is really important to understand that this was a very big struggle by the women's movement. And, you know, we did mention that Ojalan's influence and, um, and paradigm, especially around women's liberation as well, but it's important to recognize that it was Kurdish women revolutionaries who really, really achieved what they have achieved you know they fought for this nothing even though they had a they had someone they considered a leader who who really believed in women's liberation it still obviously weren't handed to them on a silver platter they fought for every aspect of um, freedom and equality that they fought for literally with blood sweat and tears so Mm. That's that. It's important to understand that, and also, you know, there's so yeah. Each committee will also have an education committee, so that'll be internal education for the commune as well. For example, um, how big is a commune here? Like when when you say a commune, what what does that look like roughly? I think it it changes, but it can literally be something from like um, like forty to hundred households. So okay, because it really depends on the area. So, so commune is the most sort of uh, ground ground level um, part of this structure, and then it elevates from there in order to create some alignment between different communes. Is that right? Indeed, yeah. And so the way it works is so that's where all the important decisions about like society, anything and everything is made. And so the reason why there's, for example, so the way it works is then there'll be um, the neighbourhoods uh commune or it would be um no sorry then there'll be yeah the the neighborhood assembly and then there'll be the city assembly and then the canton assembly and then the federation and the Mm -hmm. reason why there's these different levels of um i guess what we could call administration is one so obviously you know the aspects of society are not just fragmented and um you know disconnected from each other it's very important to have a very strong level of coordination between these aspects of society. And um, also at each level, it's representatives or spokespeople from, you know, the, the, the bottom or the ground level that's sent to the next level. And the way, the reason why this works is so the commune will kind of elect a spokesperson and the spokesperson isn't necessarily someone who's, who, you know, like um somehow takes um like the place of like an authority um but it's rather so it's you know not everyone in the commune can go to meetings like all the time so that's why uh it's usually every year um but obviously again communes can um kind of decide am i right here that at the commune level which is the the base layer there is no representation i i people and households represent themselves but then when it comes to the coordination between multiple communes neighborhoods um cities cantons then there's the 
communes and and like other subdivisions start to elect someone to simply coordinate the view of the commune with the views of the other communes yeah so the way it would work is the commune will have a meeting they whatever whatever it may be they'll make a decision and then that spokesperson will take it to the next level so it wouldn't be that we've elected this person and they can make every decision they want no no that person that person is the messenger here the decision's been made right yes exactly yeah yeah okay i, I mean I, f I find this um fascinating because i mean this really is it's bottom up and it starts with reality i mean the this is where we get into what is what is this thing we're talking about is this democracy is this direct democracy is it anarchism uh, which is a a uh, very misunderstood term, I think, a lot of the time. How do you guys de describe this? Um, that's interesting. I think it's it's taken as, I mean, when people in the movement talk about it, they'll just talk about it as democracy because the the analysis is that, you know, for example, the levels of democracy we criticise in, let's say, you know, in many places in the West, let's say, is that that's not a real... Um, I guess real level of democracy so they wouldn't really call it like necessarily direct democracy I guess for the sake of explanation in some places that may be um that may be it may be described in that way but especially I think with anarchism I think you're right it's definitely historically a misunderstood term um but no one in Rojava would particularly say that they wouldn't really say it's an anarchist revolution i think it's anarchistic in a way that it has many anarchist principles um you know particularly of like direct direct democracy and you know things around like self-defense so therefore you know a nation state one of the definitions of a nation state is like the it's, de it's decentralized it's emergent yeah there's, le there's legitimate authority yeah exactly and one of the definitions of a nation state is you know monopoly over violence so that's one of the things because there's what they call a self-defense mechanism where um it's literally the local people protecting their local um areas so you know defending those areas it's there is no monopoly over violence and the self-defense units of whatever area um is answerable to the very ground level so the commune level so it's not the self-defense is not answerable to the top level of like federation for example because that would mean that a few people would have the monopoly over to this well yeah so i believe one detail is the men and women in the military are recruited i'm not even sure recruited is the right word but it's happening that decision uh, is happening at a local level they're not being recruited by a central government to go to war here yeah exactly so yeah there's there's thousands and thousands of uh people who join the ypg and the ypj so even the self-defense units so the ypg uh literally means people's defense units and the ypj means the women's defense units so again even when it, even within the self-defense there's um autonomous women's units where it's women commanders and even within the people's defense units, there's women commanders, but like, just like the rest of society, even when it comes to the self-defense, I guess what people would understand as, you know, the so-called army is even when it comes to that, which obviously, you know, in our societies is usually known as the most authoritarian aspect because people think it's necessary to 
to be authoritarian within the army for it to be productive and get things done. But the mm. very units that have, you know, fought and defeated ISIS are the very units that are potentially the most democratic self-defense or, you know, uh, army, let's say, potentially in the world. Well, and you have people on the front line, different genders is, is something I, th I think that might shock people, the degree to which there's diversity there. But you also have Christians and Muslims on the front line together here, right? Yeah. and That's the degree to which they're self-governing, uh, uh, which might not be the case if it were a top-down process. Exactly. And also, um, one of the things uh, to, I guess, mention would be that anyone that chooses or tries to join the YPG or the YPJ, so the defense, uh, self-defense units, they are not handed a gun before they take ideological training, which in a significant amount of that uh, theoretical and ideological training is women's liberation ideology. So no one, including man or woman, is given a gun until they um, get educated in women's liberation. Mm. So there's, I think there's an irony here that I want to give you, well, maybe I'm wrong, but regardless, I'd like to give you an opportunity to clear up if there is an irony. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that we're talking about, talking about people deciding fundamentally is what democracy is, uh, not people having someone else decide for them, which is what the D word means. Um, and here um, we have, a, I think, a slight irony in that you're saying this group is self-governed and then you're using the term ideological training, which could, could well sound like brainwashing to some people. Um, I just want to give you an opportunity to clear up what's, what's going on there, the potential disjunct between the fact that we're saying people are choosing, but then we are also saying that there is an ideology being forced upon them. Yeah, I guess, yeah, no, that's, that's um, an important discussion to have, I guess. And uh, one of the things I would say is maybe the way I or we use ideology is, you know, I think that term does have quite bad press. So potentially that's potentially not the right term to use. But when I mean by ideology, I literally mean um, they get training in what direct democracy, uh, ecological um, sustainability and women's liberation means. And that's the pillars that that society is built on. So it's not that, you know, we're telling you this is what you should do. We're giving you the education of the historical references we take in the way we are building society and people are given that training. So this is training in how to organize a group of diverse humans cohesively. Yes. So it's so it's yeah. So the training would consist of um, a history of the region. So the history of the Middle East and of Kurdistan um it would consist of you know again an analysis of um capitalist modernity and therefore uh, how to build democratic modernity which is um you know what is what is considered to be the philosophy behind what we call democratic confederalism which is literally the system of rojava or the democratic federation of northern syria um yeah. so um so yeah they, they would given they would be given that training um and they would, so again, it depends uh, if it's, for example, you know, the, the self-defense forces or any other aspect of society, but most of the time they will be 
they will be given training, for example, about what a cooperative is and what a cooperative economy would be. And then um, a significant part of the education would also be, you know, 5,000 years of uh, patriarchy and therefore why and how women's liberation is the center of um, this revolution and this system. So mm. that's, that's the kind of education it they, they would receive. So I feel like we're, we're, we're starting to tick off some of, some of, <laughs> we, we need to do this all day to really tick it all off, but some of the areas that I think are making this super interesting. So we, we've got this idea of the different layers, I guess, communes, neighborhoods, cities, um, and cantons, and then the, the federation. We've got, um, you've given us a little bit of a description, um, about the military as well and the education part of that um and the I, I think we're starting to embed the notions of pluralism and diversity in that um can you tell us a little bit more about how the meetings whatever meetings they are and the administration are run in the i you know i find it i think a lot of people listening uh particularly with with a strong negativity bias or a cynical perspective might be going, well, there's got to be leaders around here. Um, and I've read sufficient stuff to tell me that's not true. Um, now, typically I find that facilitators can replace leaders in those processes, but I'm just wondering what does a meeting look like, like a commune meeting? What, what is stopping that from being bulldozed by a strong character or, or anything like that? So the way it works is, um, like you said, yeah, there aren't a leader. There aren't leaders in the meeting. There's facilitators, and what it would be is that. So every meeting, um, that that meeting will choose who facilitates the meeting. So someone there will like someone. It it will usually be the spokesperson of let's say the commune who will say, okay, does anyone have <coughs> any suggestions? So there is a spokesperson. Well, yeah, like I said, the spokespeople who are usually um, kind of the people who like are the messenger with the other. Yes. Leaders. Yeah. They're collaborators. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so okay, understood. It, it, not ev not like, it's not necessarily like this, but, you know, it, it may be and usually probably would be that that spokesperson would say, OK, who does anyone have any suggestions for who should facilitate? And then someone will get up and say, I think you know, this person should facilitate today. Mm -hmm. And then they would say, the, usually what they do actually is they choose three facilitators. Um, mm. And that's depending, I guess, depending on the size of the meeting, but more or less every single time, I think it is three facilitators. And um, they, throughout the meeting, will take turns to kind of facilitate, I guess, you know, let's say the meeting is like divided into three parts, which I think it usually is um they would facilitate like different aspects of the meeting mm -hmm. so yeah even okay. facilitators are chosen you know within the meeting like on the day and can you give us an example of um some decisions that have been made i mean ideally a deci decisions that have been made by the group because i think some a lot of people who have only known autocratic companies even that they've worked in um, are resistant to think that a group can make smart decisions. Um, and so I'd love to hear some smart decisions that you've heard communes or, or cantons make 
and also how potentially um, decisions or beliefs from diverse communes have ever managed to collaborate or merge? I think, um, so the way it works is, I'm trying to think of a concrete example, but especially when, if a decision has some opposition, usually what it would happen, what would happen is, even if it's one or two people that don't agree with it, they would usually say, okay, we're going to come back to this. And what they would do is, um, you know, that, that those people, for example, will maybe voice their opinions. Like sometimes the way it happens is, so a decision will be proposed and then people get up and say, oh, I want, for example, I'm tr I, I can't really think of, because I've, I've obviously never been a part of a commune in Rojava, um, and I'm trying to think of some of the decisions I may have um, come across, but it's, it's, it's not coming. I mean, I've, he I've heard of some decisions to do with um, food, actually, where I think some, some families, they elected to take it in turns to cook for the whole commune um, in, in difficult circumstances. I think it was during like, particular conflict periods. Um, so I know, I know there's stuff like that. Um, happening but that's okay I was, I was just interested um, to, to give like some real some real illustrations for people who might be finding this theoretical yeah so I think with some decisions so the way it would work is um, yeah so for example if a decision about let's say the health center of the the local health center they will talk about you know, let's say how many days should it be open? And so there would be, a, they, let's say the proposal is, I think we should open it for uh, two days. And then, they, you know, that decision will be uh, proposed to the meeting. And then there might be adjustments, uh, you know, suggested adjust, adjustments. So someone, someone might get up and say, oh, but, you know, there's, for example, if it's open on, let's say, Mondays and Fridays, um, it might not be a good idea because on Fridays, um, you know, Muslims go to pray. So they would say, okay, let's open it on an extra day as well. And then if that's accepted, so that's a decision. It's open three days a week, for example. So um, those are the kind of considerations. I've yeah. seen, I've seen um, commune meetings where they talk about, you know, for example, the local road and people going too fast on it or something. So, the, mm. you know, those kind of like... Down to real detail there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that would be like, okay, we need to do something about it. And then they'll say, yeah, we want, I don't know, it might be that we need to make sure that there's precautions taken that they don't go too fast or mm. we make sure that, you know, on, from, you know, certain, between certain hours that, I don't know, it might be that no cars can go through that. Mm. Um, I, mean, I think, I think what really fascinates me about this is that you kind of end up with almost like a horizontal and a vertical axis. The, the vertical axis in this case is, is just so different from um, like representative democracies in that it really is the people closest to the situation, whatever that may be, that are deciding. Uh, and they're the most informed people because, because they're the closest to the situation rather than people so removed from a situation deciding. Um, then horizontally, you know, I'm, I'm assuming in this situation that a decision can be made in Commune A uh, and it goes so well, it's so transformative for that community that Commune B, uh, when they're having these sort of cohesion um, 
meetings can can choose to replicate what's happening elsewhere so that that learning and innovation can happen across the communes and then spread to the others if successful and halt if unsuccessful yeah and i think the way that would uh, probably happen is you know when the spokesperson goes to the you know the next level they usually do give a bit of a report on like what they've been discussing and what they've been doing and the kind of decisions they've made and sometimes those decisions would um be like okay we are going to consider this that there would be a suggestion made that oh maybe you know the other communes here should consider this and the communes will mm. that's it, it is a two-way relationship sometimes there would be um you know a decision that would then get taken back to each individual commune mm. say you know there has been this proposal from you know uh the neighborhood commune or the city the city assembly um you know should we should we adopt it mm. yeah i think this is something that's happened i guess switzerland is probably the 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 uh, most famous example of this kind of stuff i think they have a particular example where they they tried a particularly unique approach to stopping the heroin epidemic in one canton and the success of it was able to spread into others from what i can gather um so you can get this this mass learning um yeah sort of create itself yeah but i think uh, with switzerland the difference is that it's still quite not quite it is still top down you know right so i think something i want to also clarify because i'm aware we've discussed the backdrop and a lot of the backdrop was war fundamentally um uh, there's obviously many other elements to that but but that's maybe the one that's um so stark to people and then we've also got into the solutions and described what i think is in my eyes certainly this is the stuff i geek about so i find it utterly remarkable um i'm as of yet undecided as to whether this remarkable ability to organize is um is actually a consequence of um of uh conflict and of the vacuum you described or if it is even more amazing because it's happened despite it um but i think i'm also i'm also keen to ensure that we're not painting a utopia for people here so i just want to give you the chance to to sort of give some some balance and some nuance to to what we're describing because i i hope that some of the solutions uh, that we've just described could could really inspire people to organize whatever organization they're organizing differently. Um, but but I'm keen for, for them to understand the sensitivities and the nuance from it. Yeah, I do think I do think it it you know created its own unique conditions in that it was kind of you know the vacuum created um, through war. But I do think that's I do think that what you said is quite interesting in the way that is that you know is it is that why it's happened or is it remarkable that it's happened despite that and i think it's actually a bit of both i think you know when a vacuum is created somehow it obviously makes things a little bit more immediate so therefore certain things can develop a little bit quicker but it certainly isn't the only reason why that happens so Mm. i think you know I do think in certain ways, in certain areas, it, it you know, power is such a, it, it's such a corruptive and insidious thing that I think people, wherever we are, and however, however peaceful or democracy loving any of our systems may look like when it 
comes to giving up real power, we're going to have an issue anywhere. Mm. We have an issue anywhere in the world and including where we live today. And so, yeah, of course. And so I think it's, you know, I do think it's, it's not, uh, the only way to create what's being created in Rojava. Um, but I obviously Rojava's situation, you know, it was a, a quite a unique, uh, instance in history as well, but you're right. It's not a utopia, very far from it, actually, you know, when I was there and it's important to recognize that, you know, when we talk about these things and the way these structures and me mechanisms are being set up, it doesn't mean it's all kind of bulletproof and therefore there's no problems. There are problems, but the point is, I think is that the revolutionary aspect of it is that even those problems, they have, a, they have mechanisms to be able to approach those problems. And obviously yeah. it doesn't mean that everyone woke up. Yeah, Rojava is home to 4 million people. So, and it's, and it's increasing every day. So it's not like 4 million people woke up one morning and said, oh yeah, new system, we're just gonna adopt this. It's, it's obviously a whole transformation effort of these people who are part of communes to try and grow their communes and try and encourage people to create their own communes. and and educate themselves about, you know, the direct democracy and ecology and uh, women's liberation. So that is, I would say, the most important aspect of the revolution is the approach to struggle and the method. So that's where we get some things wrong in like where we are is that we really don't understand that the, the revolutionary thing itself, the revolutionary thing is the method. Um, not mm. not necessarily the end point so mm. i think it's important and actually the method is more important than the end point um the, the way in which you get there so you know there's been many revolutionary instances and not even just revolutionary instances but many instances in history where it's like because we want to get this is the end point we want to get to by any means necessary and that is that is where we fail is when we think, okay, because we want to, this is our destination. Let's find any and every way to get there. And let's just get there because that's our only goal. You know, the, the Roger revolution is, is more embedded in the method it uses and the way they are trying to, and always try to transform act, act, aspects of society. Cause we need to understand this, this area and these societies are historically quite conservative societies. You know, like there's 40 million Kurds and the majority of them are, are quite conservative people. And so obviously, you know, if, and from the historical references we have is that region is also the birthplace of patriarchy, the birthplace of the States, you know, the Sumerian state and so on. So, you know, if in the birthplace of patriarchy within quite a conservative society even the discussion of women's liberation is 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 being had then clearly in terms of method this movement has done something right and you know and it's not and that's not just the level it's at you know obviously women are are feeling inspired and wanting to liberate themselves and liberate each other every day so it must be doing something right that even at this level, even only about six years in, it has been um, adopted and taken on by quite a large part of society. And I think that's why there is no, um, there is no prototype that will work for everywhere in the world, which is, yeah. you know, which is the beauty of like, you know, our complexness as humans and human societies and, 
and um, the beauty of our differences, which is why a system based based on the principles of direct democracy, ecology and women's liberation, the way we organise that might look quite different in somewhere like London, for example, and especially like London, because it's, you know, an incredibly diverse city, um, quite crowded as well, obviously. Um, so, you know, the if anyone ever wants to organise based on those principles, you know, we would need to understand how to do that in London and it wouldn't necessarily. Mm. So that, yeah, that cultural understanding or sensitivity is, is an absolute necessity to get something going. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Yeah, it, well, it, exactly. And also, you know, the people who want to set up something like this, you know, your local community in, I don't know, like, let's say, um, Labrick Grove, you know, those communities would have to have that discussion. There is, you know, there's obviously a, I guess what we could call a guidance on what different committees could look like and, you know, what, what structures a commune could have and these kind of things. And I think they're important. They could be important in a way to inspire people and use as potentially as a foundation or as a base to try and organize in that way. But it doesn't necessarily mean that your local structures would look the same as what Rojava looks like. Mm. Yeah, I've got to say, you, you mentioned the word prototype. If, if like think of a thought experiment, uh, you and I, not, without this background, ask ourselves, where would be the best place to try a prototype for um, gender equality and democracy? Uh, we wouldn't go, well, let's do it in northern Syria. That, 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 that's not how that conversation would happen. And that, that's why I think I find the story you've shared today just so utterly remarkable. Uh, and it, it's that you really wouldn't think these are the conditions for something so so seemingly transformative to happen and and yet it's happened so i think other than all of the practical lessons there are to learn here um there's simply a huge amount of of optimism and inspiration to to be taken and energy to be taken i'm wondering if you if you have any and this, this is the part of the podcast where i start to ask people what uh, what their takeaways are Maybe a way to ask you that is what do you think the lessons from this could be for our listeners uh, or may maybe for, for the West in general? I'm not sure. But what, what are your, your main takes from all this? I think, you know, um, I think the takeaway could be and it comes it came to mind when you said, you know, when we when we if we spoke about this prototype, we wouldn't think northern Syria. And I think that the takeaway can be exactly that in a way that you know in the west we're usually somehow i don't i don't want to call it programmed but you know you also spoke about ideology and being brainwashed we are quite brainwashed into the fact that you know we are the vanguards of like human civilization and democracy and you know it, it's it's never been it's never it's not like this anywhere else in the world so we have the illusion that we're more free than you know let's say people in the middle east and i don't think so i actually think it's quite the opposite and i think the takeaway for people could be that you know, to understand that our level of freedom that we think we have or that we're in a way brainwashed into having potentially is... Maybe there's a, maybe there's a comfort there that we, that we, that we're tricked to thinking that's freedom when actually yeah. it's simply comfort. And I think it's quite, it, it's, it's quite, it's an illusion in a way that, 
you know, if we think about our day-to-day -day lives and our broader lives as well, most people probably work a nine to five and therefore, you know, have to go Monday to Friday and, you know, you have your everyday commute, you know, Monday to Friday, especially is like pretty much the same every week. And the decisions about wider society, we're just made to like, we are made to feel like we just don't have the time to be involved. So most mm. people we talk to would probably say, wow, that sounds amazing, but that's probably time consuming. And that's the thing. I think the takeaway, the important takeaway is that one, direct democracy doesn't have to be time consuming. Two, we work nine to fives, Monday to Friday. As humanity, it's proven by many, many studies that we don't have to work that much. You yeah. know, people in their jobs on a day-to-day -day basis, they are not working nonstop from nine to five. Really. I mean, because it assumes that running your community isn't a part of your job. My assumption is that in, a, in, in the system you're describing, um, particularly with conflict, like literally the other side of, of the, the gate, so to speak, there's... Um, People are having to take responsibility beyond the money they're earning and also take responsibility for the community that they're building, right? Yeah, and also, obviously, it's not the fault of the people who do do these nine-to-fives because they obviously have to pay their rent and they have to pay their bills and mm. they, have to, they have to get by somehow. And that's, that's the issue within itself is that we think by doing that, somehow we have choice in that. Sometimes, somehow, we are more free than, you know, a... A, mm. I don't know, like 60 year old woman in uh, Northern mm. Syria, she's way more free than us. You know, right. There's the, I mean, I think uh, people call it wage slavery, right? Yeah, exactly. And I've seen videos of 80 year old Kurdish women who sit down and give like this incredibly like, like surprising, and maybe it's like, I need to question myself as to why I find that surprising, incredible political analysis of like global politics. And she, you know, she's, <laughs> she's like probably spent her whole life in a village, but you see that, you know, especially through this revolution, she had the opportunity to educate herself, to understand not just her, you know, her own society, but also like global politics as well, and find strength in herself and have the confidence, even as, even as, you know, as for example, 70 or 80 year old woman to organize within her own society. And, and that's important, I think, is that, you know, yes, for a lot of people it's surprising. What do you mean this is happening in Northern Sea? And no, surely, and this is what we say, what I hear a lot, surely that there's something wrong with that. Why? Because it's mm. not the West. And I think, you know, people can understand that one, there's a lot of places in the world that are actually free, freer than us. You know, there's the Zapatistas in Chiapas that have that example. There's many uh, commune structures within uh, Catalonia as well. There's, yeah. like, there's many areas of the world that have these uh, experiments on slightly smaller scales, but nevertheless have them. You know, I do think right now throughout the world, Rojava is probably the largest scale um, of this happening because it's Northern Syria, it's home to 4 million people. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's something that could, you know, is promising enough to say, okay, maybe it can actually be taken as an example for many other places in the world. Because a lot of the time when these instances happen, we're told that, oh, but it's just a tiny little village. Like, what do you mean? We have such a complex society. How could that work in London? But I think right now we have the example of Rojava that, yeah, maybe it wouldn't look exactly the same in, let's say, somewhere like London or Liverpool, but it means that it could still be some sort of an example to be able to try and experiment where we are.
I mean, four million is a decent number, I think. <laughs> I think I think it's probably probably a pretty fair fair example to use. Uh, I'm aware we're coming to the end of our conversation, but is there is there anything you'd like to add? Like, is there anything that you feel we've we've not covered, or a point you think it, it's important that you share with our listeners? Um, I mean, one there's there's many points that can be covered and i'm sure you know there were many times you stopped yourself to like not digress into other aspects but i think what i would say is you know it's important to understand that you know these are not just um just utopias and unique instances in history that can't happen where we are and i think you know the idea of struggle and you spoke about something to do with our comfort and i think it's important to understand that a lot of the time freedom is, means like the, the opposite of comfort. A lot of the time fighting for freedom and struggle means being uncomfortable for a while. But I think it's important to see some beauty in that discomfort as well, that, that you're fighting for something meaningful. And, you know, I always try to say to people that, you know, I'm a, I'm a Kurdish woman who was born in London who, you know, I could have, again, I, I, could have a nine to five and like, you know, potentially be, you know, earning like a decent income and just, you know, just living like most people live. But I chose to try and make my life more meaningful and somehow in the way, in the humble way, I can have a contribution to a struggle that I think could have profound effects and influences on human history in general. So I think a lot of the time we think, oh, I'm only one person, but I think everyone listening to this can certainly make a difference. And not in like the kind of, you know, be the difference you want to see in the world kind of way, however nice and, you know, widespread that uh, comment may be, because that's also, that is usually used to depoliticize people. But I think all of us can be political beings and can understand politics and the only politics in the world isn't what we just see the way we see our political parties constantly like you know um battling for power that's that's a very small aspect of what politics should be mm. arguably yeah we've not discussed political parties at all despite talking about politics for for an hour coming coming two hours i think so yeah, <laughs> so i think that really that really says that um there are other 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 ways of seeing things beyond the way we're currently seeing them right exactly yeah so i would just say you know just engage with these ideas i would suggest everyone to read um you know some of abdullah ojalan's works to try and get an understanding of um you know what's happening there and i guess especially the theoretical and um philosophical uh, foundations of what's happening and I just think just also read it for fun. Like he, he talks in all of his books, he talks a lot about um, history. Um, he talks about civilization, about colonialism. He talks about many aspects that many people may be interested in. So even if you're, you still don't really want to have involvement in politics, just read his stuff. It's interesting. <laughs> mm. Great. Well, thanks so much for an amazing conversation today. I mean, I... I'm trying to think how I summarize this. Like I, I've, uh, I knew I'd be really inspired by um, the organizational element because that's really my bullseye, uh, and and that's certainly not disappointed. But I think the, the I just want to say the reason, one of the reasons I did this podcast was so that I could 
learn and have really diverse conversations with really diverse people about diverse ideas. Uh, and today that word <laughs> seems to have really gone through um, not only our conversation, I think we've navigated some, some like taboo or, or tricky topics at times, but also that it's so inspiring to hear how that is fundamental to the revolution you're talking about, about particularly with, with gender equality. Um, so thank, thanks so much for, for this conversation, for sharing so openly um, and for be, be willing. I know two hours feels shallow in a way, but, but it, might, it might, to people listening to this on the tube, it might feel, um, it might feel like a good in-depth exploration. I certainly hope they feel that way. So yeah. Thanks so much, Alif. Yeah, I hope people somewhat make sense of my rambling. And yeah, of course, thanks for having me, John. <laughs> Not at all. Two last questions. One is, uh, I ask all guests on the podcast to suggest a guest for the podcast. So this is someone you, you think would, would um, be a great guest on the podcast and that you, you know and can introduce me to. Is there anyone that pops to mind? Um, I mean, there's, there's um, I would say, a few. There is... Um, another young woman woman called uh Dilar Dirik who's just finished her PhD on the Kurdish women's movement so I think it could be interesting to speak to her and also my supervisor David Graeber he's an anthropologist and also um known as one of the people who was quite active in the Occupy movement right wonderful well I'll be tapping I'll be tapping you up for for introductions those both those both sounds like um, really remarkable topics and people to, to have on the podcast. Yeah. Um, just finally, where can, um, if listeners today um, want to wanna follow you, your work, where, where can you point them to? Um, I'm, I'm, I use Twitter. So my Twitter is Elif uh, Khayal. So it's E-L-I-F. You might have to spell that one out, yeah. <laughs> so it's E-L-I-F-X-E-Y-A-L. Great. Great. So that so so reach out to to Elif uh, on this if you if you've been inspired by this conversation. Thanks so much for this this really uh, remarkable conversation. I, I feel really grateful that we've had it. Thank you. All right. Take care. See ya. Bye. Yeah, bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Again, if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe in your podcast app. And particularly subscribe to my newsletter. You can find that johnbarnes.me forward slash podcast, J-O-N-B-A-R-N-E-S dot me forward slash podcast. And there you'll get all the, the updates and information that you need, um, as well as some, some bonus stuff coming up soon. So please take care and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.